Hey there, story junkies. Welcome back to my cozy kitchen table out here in the ether where I spin stories for your listening enjoyment. I'm Adrienne Montoya, and this is a special bonus episode of Southwest Gothic. After the teaser and then that inaugural episode last week, some of you may be puzzling over the meaning of the name Southwest Gothic. And this interlude is my effort to explain why, after probably way too much deliberation, I chose it. Today's fare is some literary theory light, plus some bad jokes and a vague approximation of an aesthetic manifesto. I've mostly refrained from geeking out on intertextuality and semiotics, but no promises for the future. Let's bite off the gothic element first, and I hope you'll see why I use it to frame up that beautiful, dusty mess we call Southwest. So, without further ado, some words on the word Gothic. What do we mean by Gothic? Is it a reference to barbarians from Germania lurking on the fringe of the Roman Empire? Or an architectural style from medieval Europe? Or a literary effect? Or a typeface? Or is it black-clad, melancholy youths lurking on the fringe of the local mall, intimidating suburbanites with their gloomy aesthetic? If any or all of these things come to mind when you hear Gothic, well, you're right. Linguists call this phenomenon of significant change in meaning over time, semantic drift. And if you drop that little gem at a cocktail party, I almost promise that you'll spend the rest of the evening being chatted up by someone even nerdier than me. I make no guarantees about physical hotness, only sexy brains. And you're welcome. Anyway, semantic drift. Goths were originally ancient Germans, probably illiterate, but notwithstanding, let's zero in on that literary piece. First, consider some of the lesser legacies of early modern European civilization. We've got guilds, religious wars, and ghoulish woodcuts of plague victims. But the late Middle Ages also gifted us a new literary genre, the Romance. For better or worse, these were not your granny's stash of dime-novel bodice-rippers she thinks nobody knows she's hoarding. These original romances usually featured virtuous knights in armor going out under the banner of some or other noble monarch, defending Christendom from heathen hordes and protecting the virtue of fair maidens. Romances also included some courtly love affairs involving the fair maidens. If you're reminded of King Arthur and his knights, or the Song of Roland, or El Cid, or Amadis of Gaul, it's for good reason. Those chivalric tales exemplify the forms, themes, and values of the medieval romance. By the late 16th century, though, novels and plays with more nuanced, satirical, and true-to-life content were coming into vogue. Don Quixote, widely considered the first Western novel, is perhaps the clearest illustration of this literary shift. All of Alonso Quijano's misadventures are the result of his delusion that he is a virtuous knight-errant, the kicker being that his madness results from, no kidding, reading too many romance novels. They may have been the butt of Cervantes' joke, but the now passé romances had already left their mark on the collective European imagination. Society would go on to reuse the word romance, and yes, that's some more semantic drift for you. Here, though, it's important to remember that medieval romances often featured castles. Castles built in the high medieval style we dubbed Gothic after the region of Germany where the style is thought to have developed. And yes, the Rome-stomping barbarians hailed from there, too. Also notable, 
star-crossed romances, and now I do mean the pitter-patting heart variety, played out in those Gothic-style castles of the chivalric romances. Now, jumping forward a couple of centuries, Europe was in the throes of a new movement in the arts and philosophy. And sure, the Enlightenment popularized some rather important ideas about human dignity and cognition, scientific method and responsible government, but that reason-trumps-all ethos of Enlightenment thinking left some squishier-hearted artistic types feeling disconnected and unfulfilled. Believe it or not, the Romantic movement of the 18th and 19th centuries was reactionary. It rejected modern, rational, unemotional A-to-B thinking in favor of embracing nature and all that is wild and beautiful and possibly imaginary in it, including all that is wild and beautiful in human nature. And yes, they took their name from the medieval romances. The Romantics appreciated the high drama and chivalry that had captured the late medieval mind. There was always a touch of tragedy and darkness to medieval romances. Amplifying those elements to main foci, the later Romantics of the 18th and 19th centuries valued beauty, nature, emotion, intuition, imagination, and individual creativity. The Romantic movement spawned some important offshoots and subgenres, and one of these was, now we're coming around to the point, the Gothic novel, sometimes further categorized as Gothic romance or Gothic horror, or Gothic romantic horror for overachievers like those Bronte sisters. The first usage of the term Gothic in this sense is usually attributed to the English novelist Horace Walpole. Walpole's 1764 novel, The Castle of Otranto, was subtitled A Gothic Story. So what made it Gothic? Well, that dark and drafty castle, first of all. The Lord of Castle Otranto, Manfred, is a violent, lecherous nobleman in decline, a flawed protagonist who exploits a sudden, bizarre death in the family as an excuse to get his creep on. Manfred's hubris and poor judgment result in tragedy for everyone within his circle of influence. Walpole's novel is full of romantic entanglements, but every last one of them is doomed, some with a side of incest, and there's a fair amount of dramatically timed death. If you've read it, you'll remember that the novel opens with Manfred's son's wedding being called off because the groom has been found crushed to death by a gargantuan helmet from an oversized decorative suit of armor. I swear I am not making this up. Anyway, all these elements are packaged together in a creeping sense of dread, and the action of the story plays out in and around the castle, which features trap doors and secret passages. Otranto is gothic fiction. The reader's emotions, especially fear and terror, are teased out and manipulated by the storytelling effects. Gothic fiction was and is a popular genre. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula are essential Gothic horror, while Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is an exemplary early Gothic romance, what with its mysteriously tortured characters brooding on bleak moors. In the American tradition, Nathaniel Hawthorne's House of the Seven Gables, creepy old house, family in decline, is Gothic. So is much of Edgar Allan Poe's work, in particular his story The Fall of the House of Usher. Poe is classic Gothic horror, but William Faulkner, that indecent son of Mississippi, takes the horror of the Gothic to emotionally eviscerating depths those first romantics barely dreamed of. 
There are no castles in Yoknapatawpha County, of course, where the once powerful languish instead in crumbling antebellum homes. Next time you're in the mood for some truly beautiful decay, read the first chapter of Absalom Absalom. In Faulkner country, doomed love, thwarted desires, and the ravages of poverty, racism, and incest abound. Family secrets and other sinister truths threaten destruction, and death strikes at already vulnerable moments. There are other Southern Gothic writers, of course. Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, and Truman Capote are notable. And there's a recognized tradition of Gothic writing out of southeastern Canada. The castles may be absent, but these stories are definitely Gothic. So, to sum up, what makes Gothic fiction? It's macabre, it's tragic, supernatural, paranormal, magical, brooding, bleak, mysterious, fatalistic, unsettling, and grotesque. It's the kind of storytelling that gives us shivers because of the two close truths it tells us about our natures. But in that way, it's also cathartic. And cathartic dread and terror are precisely the emotional experiences that send Gothic stories circulating right back into the black and bloodied heart of Romanticism. Ask any mall-lurking goth kid, and they'll assure you that the gothic aesthetic embraces themes of isolation, loss, and being misunderstood. And these are allowed to play out not just in castles, but also other landscapes of heartbreaking, alienating beauty. And with that heartbreaking, alienating beauty, you see, we've arrived in the American Southwest. Now some words on the word Southwest. Yes, it's a spot on the compass, but whether you spend real-life time or page-turning time in the U.S., you already know the meaning's a bit thicker than that. And if you're from or have lived in the Southwest, the meaning is thicker still. There's geography, of course. If you look at a map of the U.S., the states in the southwestern chunk of the country that's Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Texas, as well as the southern third, maybe half of California, and that bottom triangular bit of Nevada, are the geographical southwest of the country. But the borders weren't always where they are now. At one time, those same U.S. states and bits were part of El Norte, the untamed northern frontier of Mexico, north even beyond modern Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas. Before that, it was the north end of the Kingdom of New Spain. The land has older names and divisions than those, too, of course. The mountains and valleys, rivers and deserts of this region were being shared and disputed by indigenous people long before Cabeza de Vaca and the remnants of his shipwrecked crew stumbled onto the shore at a spot we now call Galveston. There were shared cultural affinities here long before there were international borders, affinities which persist and form into new ones as borders shift and in spite of borders. A few things, then, about the Southwest. The population here isn't always dense, but the human history is layered and interwoven, and dense. We're a place and a culture of borders, intersections, and seeming contradictions. A single individual from the Southwest may comprise several superficially conflicting identities. A whole town or city, most certainly so. Sometimes we're bothered by this and sometimes not. 
If this topic interests you, read a little Gloria Ansaldúa and get delightfully schooled. There's an entire academic subdiscipline called Borderland Studies. You're welcome for that nerd tip, too. The peculiar extremes of the southwestern landscape drive human history and narrative here. The sun seems stronger. Rains are capricious. Winters and summers both are harsher than in more moderate climates. As in other places, we have fought over borders, and we still fight over gold and silver when we find them, but also water, coal, other rare minerals and metals, and the courses of rivers and roads. The land separates us too. Whether we're literally isolated at present or not, we have such a long history of isolation that it's easy to feel it anyway, and often comfortable with it. If you've seen the Sonoran or Chihuahuan deserts for yourself, or driven a snow-covered mountain pass in the Rockies or the Sierras, you understand how easy it is to believe that the land conspires to separate you from the rest of the human race. But that's a paranoid thought. The land doesn't plot against you because you just don't matter that much to the land. There are stone walls that weren't stacked by human hands, desert mesas and narrow canyons, granite peaks and spires reaching above where the trees can grow, and they can be more haunted than any old castle. And who needs a castle when you've got cliff palaces, gold rush ghost towns, bloody miraculous Santa Fe, desperate excessive Las Vegas, and all the human strangeness that is LA. Out here in the Southwest, the land and its loneliness are so vast and uncaring they threaten to swallow you whole. How then do we keep finding it so very beautiful? What is it about or despite the land's apathy towards us that keeps pulling us this way? American cultural history views the West as a land of wildest dreams opportunities. This isn't untrue. Especially in the Southwest, anything has been and is possible. But let's be clear, we're not always talking about the cheerful cricket, a dream is a wish your heart makes kind of possibility either. Anything is possible, and that includes all the ugly, terrifying possibilities right alongside the slim hope that something good will happen, that you'll hit that rich yellow vein in the mountain. Sure, many people have found success in some form in the Southwest, but at least as many have found death, loss, and tragedy. You know, all those Gothic fiction things. So that's Southwest Gothic, by my account. It's a manner of storytelling, of framing folklore and history. As an approximation to regional narrative, Gothic themes and aesthetics strike me as particularly well-suited to the Southwest. Now, not every story I share will be strictly Gothic in its elements, but that's the departure point I'm using. All of the stories I'm considering have some darkness or curiosity to them, and they all take place in the Southwest. Some or all of the stories I tell may be new to you. A few of them are new to me, too, and others I heard so early on that I don't remember not being haunted by them. Perhaps because of those haunting tales, my heart beats more fiercely for this space on the map than for any other. I do love a good story. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my stories. And maybe you'll even carve out a little rincón in your own heart for this crazy, haunted, beautiful place. 
I'm Adrienne Montoya, and I'll be back here in about a week with another full-length episode of Southwest Gothic. Find episodes, show notes, and other information at southwestgothic.com. You can follow the show on Facebook at Southwest Gothic Podcast and on Instagram with the handle southwest.gothic. Thanks for listening. Thank you.